I recently completed four and a half days of training on the assessment and treatment of sex addiction. And you might be thinking, I'm not a sex addict, so this isn't relevant. Well, I'd encourage you to keep listening because we'll also talk a lot about what healthy sexuality looks like in this show. There'll be plenty of food for thought, whether this is an issue in your marriage or not. The Marriage Podcast for Smart People is designed to help busy couples like yourselves move away from conflict and unhappiness to build a marriage you'll love today and treasure for a lifetime. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Learn how you can help save marriages, prevent divorces, and keep families intact by going to oyf.support. Once again, that website is oyf.support. And now, here are your hosts, Caleb and Valinda Simone Gundel from Only You Forever. Welcome to the Marriage Podcast for Smart People. If you want to build a thriving, passionate marriage, we've got the research, the truth, and the answers you're looking for. We have an interesting episode this week about an issue that is devastating many marriages. This is episode number 147, and today we're going to be talking about sex addiction. Hey there, before we get started, if you missed last week's episode, we revealed how you can learn to date your spouse again. So it's worth going back and checking out. Also, make sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any upcoming shows. If you're struggling with your marriage, we offer sound research-based advice, and most of all, we offer hope. So let's get into this topic of sex addiction. And we're going to handle this show differently than usual, maybe more like an interview format, just because Caleb has been studying this material. So we're going to be having a conversation about the course rather than our usual, more structured teaching format. So Caleb, I guess first off, it would be like, what is sex addiction? What is not sex addiction? Okay. And that's a good question because I think a lot of times, sometimes people are very, uh, if they have a high libido, they're like, am I sex and a sex addict? You know, like I always want to have sex with my husband or my wife. So sex addiction is not high desire or couples that enjoy a lot of sex. Okay. It's really the difference between compulsive versus healthy sex. So compulsive sex is about using your genitals to avoid feelings. It's an avoidance of intimacy. It's not true. It's not real intimacy. Yeah. And And then in healthy sex, closeness and affection are enhanced. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. Sorry. I lost how I had that laid out. So... Whereas in healthy sex, closeness and affection are enhanced by the sexual act. Okay. In compulsive relationships, these are marked by loneliness, possessiveness, jealousy, anger, and alienation. Whereas healthy intimacy affects the growth of both individuals, like positively. Yeah. Right? There's no game in the courting process of healthy courting. Healthy courting and bonding is an honest, slow process. Whereas in a sex-addicted person, when that, when that addiction is towards actually becoming sexually intimate with somebody. Yeah. The courting process is more of a game. It's an attempt to conquer or to or to seduce or lure. Oh. So it's more okay. gamified, it objectifies the person in that sense. Whereas healthy courting and bonding is is an honest, slow process where you're getting to know each other, it's deepening, there's a progress to this. Okay. It's not a game. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And I've never heard mention of a couple, like a, a re, you know, a reasonably happy married or even an averagely happy married couple who are sexually addicted to each other. So it's a very extreme behavior. It's not just about having a lot of sex, okay. which is what we kind of think. Because maybe we go to alcoholism, we think, well, they drink every day. Right. Whereas most people drink once or two times a week, maybe, or something like that, right? Okay. So it's not necessarily about the frequency. It's more about the compulsivity and the nature of the process. Hmm. Uh, it's not necessarily porn addiction either. Although porn addiction can be a huge catalyst for accelerating sex addiction, a, if I can call it normal, quote unquote, porn addiction is, is different. 
than a full-fledged sex addiction. Than a full-fledged sex addiction, yeah. Okay. And it's not necessarily sex offending, although a lot of sex offenders are also sex addicts. And the whole sex offender part is a different, equally specialized treatment approach. But it is like, even if you were qualified to treat sex addicts, you would not be qualified to treat sex offenders. That's a different. Oh, really? Just because there's a shift in the worldview that's going on there. Oh, okay. Okay. So sex addiction too, like they've tried to put some diagnostic criteria around this. Yeah. And there's a little bit of a battle between the people that are working in this field. And I think it's the APA, the American Psychological Association, whoever it is that publishes the DSM, yeah, which is the diagnostic manual because they did not include sex addiction in the manual. Oh. But they've been working hard to try to establish what are the criteria for addiction. Yeah. And so these are the 10 criteria so far, and they're hoping that this will come into the manual eventually. So the first is loss of control. So once once the person kind of go gets into their routine, there's just a, an inability to stop. There's compul- so that kind of goes with any addiction, does it not? Yeah, actually, you'll, you'll these should almost all sound familiar if you've okay. ever studied other addictions. Okay. Compulsive behavior. There's okay. What do you mean by that? Because you mentioned it earlier too. Like compulsive. Yeah, like a sex addict, it's more compulsive than like a couple having lots of sex. So what do you mean by compulsive? It's almost like it's more like you find yourself doing it than you will to do it. Like it, there's a force driving you to do it. Rather than just wanting to. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not in any way justifying the addict and saying they're, it no, is out of no. control, but it's not beyond their control. But it, right. is, it is that sense of this is now a power of force on its own. Okay. And of course, tied to that, efforts to stop is another criteria. So repeated efforts to stop that have failed. Loss of time. So engaged in the activity, losing track of time. Wow. Okay. Uh, similar to that preoccupation. So the, especially in the parts leading up to acting out, there's just this obsessive thinking where you can't get past thinking about what you're about to act out. Okay. Often there's an inability to fulfill obligations. So there's consequences in the home, in the family, at work, jobs So this lost. is obligations other places. Yep. Okay. Uh, continuation despite consequences. So you've been busted three times, put in jail for seeking out prostitutes, but you continue to go and do that kind of thing. Okay. Escalation. It's getting worse, more severe, more common. Somehow it's escalating over time. Mm-hmm. Losses. You've lost your wife. You've lost your job. Oh, those kind okay. Of things. You've lost your relationship with your family, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually huge financial losses. And then withdrawal. So you've, you're, there's a withdrawal from a, your social network, from your family, of, a circle of friends, that kind of thing. Okay. So those are the 10 criteria for addiction. I think they're the same as the 10 criteria for alcohol addiction that is in the manual. Really? Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Okay. So like, as you were saying before, couples who have a lot of sex might say, am I addicted? Am I a sex addict? So what is the difference or what are some differences between healthy sexuality versus addictive? Okay. And I think this is a good question because this is for folks that are listening today that are pretty sure they're not sex addicted. This is a good kind of self-check on here too, about how we're coming to our sex lives. Okay. So what I'll do is I'll kind of give a statement from each side, from addictive and then healthy. So addictive okay. sexuality feels shameful. So after having sex, there's shame. Oh, okay. Healthy sexuality should foster positive self-worth. Interesting. So there's a difference there, right? Yeah, yeah. Addictive sexuality is usually illicit, possibly illegal, or at least socially unacceptable. It's stolen or it's exploitative, whereas healthy sexuality has no victims. Hmm. Addictive sexuality compromises values. Healthy sexuality, you operate within a value system. So could... Like from what you've said so far, I'm kind of thinking this person has gone outside their marriage. Yeah. So you don't generally find a sex addict within acting out within their marriage? No, you can. I'm just, I'm cautious about discussing things that I hear in class because some of them are so violating to hear about one man. Oh, okay. Okay. He was exploiting his wife while she was asleep without her consent. 
without her willing. So okay. that was inside a marriage. That was exploitative. He felt shameful. Right. Okay. Right? Okay. It's really compromising values because it wasn't two consenting adults. So even though they were married, it was still outside of one of their value systems at least. Gotcha. Okay. Makes sense. But usually it is acting out outside of a marriage. Okay. Addictive sexuality draws on fear or fear for excitement. Hmm. Okay. Whereas healthy sexuality uses intimacy for excitement. Think of high risk behaviors, right? Yeah. The possibility of contracting AIDS with a prostitute. So that fear and getting away with it is part of the stimulatory process for the addict. Wow. If prostitution is their thing, right? Okay. Whereas healthy sexuality uses intimacy for excitement. Addictive sexuality often reenacts childhood sexual abuse or childhood abuse, whereas mm. healthy sexuality cultivates a sense of being an adult. Hmm. Addictive sexuality is you're often very disconnected from yourself, whereas healthy sexuality fosters your sense of self, like who I am, what I enjoy. Okay. Addictive sexuality creates a world of unreality and healthy expands reality through being in touch with the present. So you're very much in the moment. You're with another person. Okay. Right. Addictive is self-destructive and dangerous. Healthy relies on safety. Okay. So you get to see the, the differences here, right? Yeah. Should we keep going through these? Uh, up yeah. to you. <laughs> Just wanted to check if you thought it was useful. I yeah, think it's really interesting, more, actually. Yeah. yeah. So addictive uses conquest or power, whereas okay. healthy is mutual, consensual, and equal. Hmm. Addictive serves to medicate and kill pain. Healthy fosters the self-regulation of emotions. So rather than killing the emotions. Right. It's acknowledging them. Huh. Addictive is dishonest or requires a double life, whereas healthy sexuality originates in integrity and authenticity. Mm-hmm. Wow. Addictive becomes routine, grim, or joyless, where healthy sexuality is spontaneous, fun, and playful. Now, some marriages don't always get there. It doesn't mean you're addicts. Okay. But, you know, maybe it's a clue that you've got a part of your sex life that's in need of a brush up. Right. Right. Um, addictive sexuality demands perfection, which is interesting. Like often like there's very specific rituals that sex addicts get into and like everything has to happen a certain way. It kind of ties back to the, the control thing. That's often a power of this too. Part really? of this too. Yeah. Whereas healthy sexuality accepts the imperfect. Okay. Addictive sexuality is suffocating, demanding, clinging, or disengaged. Those are kind of like opposites, aren't they? Clinging or disengaged. Yeah. Yeah. It can be one or the other. It wouldn't be both of those. I wouldn't think. Oh, okay. Like disengaged again, like um, we're just going through an acting out ritual, right? Oh, okay. Whereas healthy sexuality is respectful of boundaries, is accepting, and is intimate. So hmm. it's a good contrast there. Yeah, that's really interesting. So what, what what causes this? Like what? Why do people? Yeah, why do people become sex addicts? Where do they come from? Yeah, so as you can imagine, there's as many stories and causes as there are people. Right, yeah. And every story is very unique. But there are some common characteristics that... People that have been studying in this field for decades now are starting or have observed and noted. One is the family background. The family is that the, the addict comes from is characteristically rigid and disengaged. So for 77%, like three quarters of addicts, mm -hmm. their family of origin is very rigid in terms of its rules, its guiding, whereas other families are more flexible. Okay. Okay. But they're also at the same time disengaged. So there's no real connection from parents to children. Even though other. they're rigid. So it's just like law. It's keeping. law and no love. Wow. Okay. That's 87% disengaged. So this is a very, very common characteristic in, in the families of family of origin of sex addicts. Okay. Rigid and disengaged. And also 80% of them have addicts in their family. So addiction is part of the family's 
It could be food. It could be oh, substance abuse. It could abuse. be different addictions. Yeah. It could okay. be sex as well. It could be work. Wow. Addictions, different things. 97% of sex addicts were emotionally abused as children. That's really high. Really high. 81% sexually abused as children. So emotional abuse was higher than sexual abuse even. Yeah. Physical abuse, 72%. Like that's still three quarters though. It's huge. Even though yeah. it's not as high as 97%, it's, it's still... It's huge, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of the... Um, like the sexual abuse, for example, like a lot of times too, when you see them, they're actually reenacting childhood trauma in the way that they act out because they're trying to gain control of over mastery of a profoundly defining and disturbing incident that happened to them when they were young. Wow. So they reenact the whole thing in order to try to feel different at the outcome of it. They never do. So they keep trying. Wow. Makes sense? Yeah. Um, another thing that's very common is pornography and it's really seen as a catalyst or a portal to amplify the sex addiction. Okay. So Dr. Patrick Carnes was the guy who first started to research and uncover all this. He's like the leading guy in it. Okay. Said, hey, there's a thing going on here. And he documented all. He published his book and like three years later, basically the internet hit. Okay. And it was just like throwing fuel on the fire and all of this just exploded. Oh, I yeah. see. Because pornography became accessible at that so point. So much more accessible than so many more people struggling with these things had just all that fuel added onto their fire. Wow. Of brokenness, right? Yeah. So I like to see it as a very broken way of coping with pain from trauma, abuse, neglect, and so on. Mm -hmm. And of course, the addict absolutely must take responsibility for all of their choices, but there are significant tragic things that have happened in their lives that have made them vulnerable to these choices in a way that those of us without those experiences are not going to be nearly as vulnerable. Right. So they are still 100% responsible for yes. their actions, Yeah. but you can kind of see how they got there. That you can definitely see how they got there. Or why they're making those choices. Right. And so I think this is valuable in a couple of points over there. One is that, you know, if you have a high libido, mm -hmm. you're not at risk for being, becoming a sex addict. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Just because you want lots of something doesn't mean you're an addict. Right. Huh. It's the compulsive behaviors that would... It's all these other things come into play. There's these family of origin issues that are almost always going to be there. Hmm. Right. But I think there's another part too, which says that which is useful, like for someone, so we might have someone listening today who's in this, right? Yeah. And maybe they haven't even disclosed to their spouse or whatever. It's still secret or private. I don't know. Yeah. But I think there's some hope here too, because, you know, you could, often we respond to something when we see something like this as other human beings, we respond with disgust and we objectify the person and say, they're screwed up. Right. They're messed up. Okay. Like there's some kind of flaw in their character and I'm just, I'm disgusted and we stop right there. Right. Okay. But all of these things that are in behind, there's healing for, and there's treatment protocols. Hmm. Right. So it's not like you're stuck in this addiction cycle. No. no. So when, yeah, when you go into treatment for this, the first thing they do is they put a moratorium on sex and usually it's a 90 day thing just so the addict gets to learn for themselves that they can actually survive without it. Okay. Right. So this, the behavior has to stop right away. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's good to know, you know what, there are ways to heal from the things that are in behind so that this issue that I'm facing right now and the compulsivity, that can be decreased. All okay. that stuff drops, fades when the other parts of me are, that are broken are healed. Huh. Very interesting. So yeah, there's hope then Yeah. for sex addicts. You just said, so what, can you tell us a little bit about the treatment or is that like yeah. giving away all your secrets? No, it's not secret by any means. Okay. So it was really neat to sit in the course and to hear stories of very broken lives and marriages. Yeah. And there's, like, there's so much destruction and pain. Like sometimes you listen and you kind of just take your breath with it. You'd be like, Ugh. like oh, wow. just heavy, right? Yeah. But now these, these people that are whole and their lives are manageable now. 
Like it's not out of control hmm. anymore for the addict. Yeah. And they're pursuing healthy courtship and healthy intimacy, which is really, really neat. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that impressed me and I've been, I'm now part of the, um, the CSAT mailing list. So I get people talking about cases and things that they see going on. Okay. And these are all counselors that are talking. These are counselors. Yeah. Okay. On a private mailing list. It's amazing. The recovery rates for marriages, not just the addicts, but for marriages, like how many stay married. Mm -hmm. So you have, you have like counselors on there that have been doing this for over 10 years and they've had like, they can count on one hand, the number of couples that haven't saved their marriage and overcome the addiction. Really? Yeah. So so that's huge hope. Yeah. Even though it's so severe, it's really neat to see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what about their spouse? Like how does their spouse cope here? Well, that's a good question. And I'm not fully kind of ready to answer for that because that's the second module of the training, which I'm going to be doing here in a few weeks. Okay. Uh, But definitely one of the things that we did start to talk a little bit about was there's post-infidelity stress disorder. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lot of trauma on them Mm -hmm. that comes from the either being aware of this on an ongoing basis or being completely blown away by the secret double life that was being lived when that gets revealed. Oh, okay. Both would be traumatic. Yeah. Okay. And one thing I learned, which I did not know before, is that disclosure, like full disclosure to the spouse, yeah. should be a professionally guided process. And there are ways of doing that now uh, because of just the amount of experience and learning that has been gleaned working with folks in this in this situation. But there are ways of doing that now that minimizes the traumatic impact on the spouse. Okay. So, so just to open up and dump everything on your spouse may not be the best idea. No, it could really extend the healing process, create a profound amount of hurt. Okay. Yeah. Because it's, it's as brutal to discover. Yeah. And often in the spouse too, and this is difficult to hear and find out, but there's there's also addictive behaviors often on the spouse side as well. Really? Or they've had family of origin issues. There's been something that's framed their life that they would choose to be with a person who struggles with this. And I'm not blaming the spouse or anything like that here, but I'm just saying there's hmm. there's he- more healing to be done in, in the spouse's life as well than just the discovery of what's gone wrong in the sex addict's life. Interesting. So... Which I think is why a lot of couples come out of this stronger is because they both go through a a healing journey as a result of like everything being put out on the table. Huh. Interesting. So can you tell us a little bit of what treatment would look like? Yeah, it kind of depends on the severity, but where you have total unmanageability and maybe even you've tried basic counseling and it hasn't helped, there are inpatient programs and these often last like 12 weeks, like three months. Mm -hmm. And and so the the addict can actually go in there and it's kind of like their de- their initial detox and cleanse. Oh, And there's okay. both Christian centers for this and secular centers for this. Mm-hmm. You just want to make sure that you're finding a place that uses uh, CSATs, Certified Sex Addiction Therapist. There is another uh, course, which I believe is um, has more of a Christian flavor, although the, oh, okay. the CSAT one has a Christian kind of uh, addendum to it. Okay. Called, I think they're SATP, Sex Addiction addiction treatment professionals or something like that. Um, and I, from what I gather, just again, watching the discussion on this forum, they're pretty similar, although I've never been to the SATP stuff. Okay. So anyways, there's an inpatient program and then there's a whole bunch of follow-up work and I'm hearing of recovery treatment lasting three to five years. And then after that, you're looking at a lifetime of just working on maintenance behaviors and habits, including being part of a sex addiction group of some sort so that you're always around people that are holding you accountable. Because once, once you're in this situation and you've realize the unmanageability, like it has to become this realization that I need sort of this ongoing support to keep me from going back down that road to stay clean, to stay sober, quote unquote. Okay. So you just mentioned here talking about treatment that, you know, if basic counseling hasn't helped, is there 
like can basic health counseling help? Well, by basic counseling, I just mean that um, you go to see a, like maybe you go to see an individual counselor because, you know, you've been seeing a few prostitutes or whatever. You're probably going to make some progress, but I guess I would just say that if after some months of treatment, mm-hmm. you're not really overcoming the compulsive behaviors, the acting out is still there, or if you feel like you're white knuckling it, then it's time to up your game and go to an intensive in-treatment program. Okay. There are some CSATs like myself, I'm not a CSAT yet, I'm a candidate, but there are some who do outpatient treatment, just meeting that will do one-on-one counseling. Yeah. Um, and that is possible. And I asked the gentleman facilitating the workshop mm-hmm. about this and he said, basically, he said, just go ahead and try it. And if it doesn't work, increase the level of treatment. Okay. Which was another thing that I learned that was, I thought really interesting was that there's no failure of treatment. There's just the, we haven't approached treatment correctly in the sense of if it's not working to move the client forward, then we need to up the amount of treatment that we're providing. Okay. Okay. So basic counseling, as you call it, might work. Basic counseling might help. Uh, there has to be like trauma counseling. There has to be addiction counseling. Okay. And if your therapist doesn't know about how those things work, you may eventually fumble your way through it, but it's probably going to take you a lot longer. Okay. So if you want to do this faster or more effectively, you want to head for a more specialized person. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. So Caleb, if someone's listening and they're a sex addict or they're married to a sex addict and like they've listened here and thought, yeah, I need help. Like what's the next step? What do we do now? And they're not in any treatment yet. Yeah. 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 Good question. So, you know, there's a possibility if you're the sex addict, you might listen to this and you're all excited because finally there's something and you go tell your spouse everything. I would just caution you, like get yourself, tell your spouse that you realize that there's an issue going on here. You need to get help. So find a sex addiction therapist. Okay. There's ways you can search for CSATs online. There's, um, look for ITAP, I-I-T-A-P. I think it's .org is the website that certifies and trains okay. sex addiction therapists. Okay. And they have, a, they have a therapist directory. That's where I'm going with that. Okay. So find someone to begin talking to. And so tell your spouse enough to get in there, but you might just suggest that for, and you can just help me with how you think someone might experience this for Linda, but for now, the you will make a full disclosure, but you want to be ready to do that first. Because part of what's going on for addicts at this stage, when if they are actually just seeking treatment, is they're just beginning to move past all the denial. Mm, okay. Okay. And in all honesty, very few addicts sign themselves into therapy. Most of the time, it's the wife and she's got him by the collar and she's dragging him in. Right. So let's talk okay. to that situation. If you're the wife and you know that this is going on, there's a couple of things you can do. If the addict is in denial, there is an intervention called ARISE, A-R-I-S-E. It's an acronym. You can look it up. There are professionals, again, who are trained in facilitating ARISE interventions, which okay. compel addicts to come into treatment, addicts okay. of any kind. Okay. And this, is, this can be just so useful. Maybe you've tried to get your spouse to get help for a long, long time and they haven't done it. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's something like the end, it's the high 80s or 90s of percentile of addicts that will go in for treatment when they go through this structured oh, really? intervention process. Yeah. Wow. And uh, so that, that is one thing to do is to, if you can't get them into, if they are willing to go into treatment, just find the right person, find the right professional, get in there and start working mm-hmm. and then just let them begin to take over the process and to guide you through that. So you should, as a spouse, expect to be invited to do some therapeutic work as well. Okay. So this isn't something like, okay, now we know about it. We can figure this out on our own. Read some books. Yeah. We'll try and manage you to stop better. No. It's not going to work. It may have worked in some cases, but I didn't hear about any. Huh. Put it that way. Okay. I don't mean to disempower folks by that, but like, let's just not underestimate the strength of this problem and this addiction. 
Because alcoholics don't just read a book and... Yeah. So it's kind of like asking yourself, do we really want to revisit this, you know, even in a year? Or do we want to go really get this understood, sorted out? Okay. And find healing and recovery Hmm. and put this behind us. Right. But that there's hope that there is healing and recovery. Yes, that there are effective processes. Yeah. I think that's neat. Well, thanks, Caleb, for sharing your course. Yeah. And I look forward to after August, I guess. Yeah. I wonder if we should do another episode. I'm really looking forward to August too, because I've noticed in my own help, even just with pornography addiction, yeah, which is a very much scaled down version of this, like usually with, especially with born again, uh, pornography addicts, I'm working with them six, seven, eight sessions and they're, they're well recovered. Okay. So that's a matter of a couple of months as opposed to years, right? Yeah. But I've noticed even with that, that I've been totally under equipped in knowing how to support the spouse huh. through it if they're married. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to getting that training. Yeah. That'll be neat. Okay, let's wrap up. So thank you to those of you who became patrons between this recording and the previous one. We have Michelle and also Jonathan. And to all of you out there who support us each month, just a big thank you. Yeah, it's so much appreciated. Yeah. Next week, Fernando, we're going to be talking about perfectionism. The title of that episode is Help My Spouse as a Perfectionist. Oh, I think that's the one I need. Well, that's all for today's episode. episode. No, the episode after that is help. My spouse is embarrassing me publicly. (laughs) All right. That's all for today's episode. You can get the full show notes at oyf.link slash 147. That's 147. Find out how you can help other marriages. Go to oyf.support. Thanks. And we'll see you next week. The Marriage Podcast for Smart People is totally funded by listeners who support Caleb and Valinda in their mission to save marriages. If you would like to be part of this worthy cause, open your web browser to oyf.support. A minimum investment of $10 per month will help restore hope to married couples. Plus, as a patron, you'll gain access to exclusive bonus content and valuable information to help you succeed in your own marriage. Go to the website oyf.support now for more information. Thanks for listening to the Marriage Podcast for Smart People from Only You Forever.